So we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So uh, it was probably about three years ago. My wife and I were living in Indiana with our only child at the time, Tatum. And I was working on a kitchen renovation project. And if you know anything about me, I've always got my hand dabbling in something. And chances are I've probably employed you to help me in it if you're a good friend of mine. And so we, I was working on this kitchen renovation project, and I was doing something on the ceiling, and Tatum happened to be in the kitchen. And what happened was I had, was using a hammer, and I was hitting something, and inevitably I lost my aim and ended up hitting my finger and spouting off a four-letter word that I was not too happy that I had hit my finger about. And you, that's happened to you before, I'm sure, or maybe you're a little more holy than me, I don't know, but chances are that has happened, something has slipped up, you've said something you didn't mean, but the thing I didn't realize is there was collateral damage that happened in this scenario, because at the time our two-year-old daughter uh, was there with me, and all of a sudden she starts going blank, blank, blankety, blank, and then all of a sudden Megan and I are in the room, we're like, what have we done? But then we're like, we're like, oh, we're, we're nervous, we're scared, we're like, oh, we're just seeing like, when she's 15, this is going to be a filthy language she's going to be using. But then all of a sudden, there's this other tension inside of us where we're like, oh, this is hilarious. This is like, we got to laugh at this. I mean, this is, this is crazy. And what I realized was, in that situation, I was, I was confronted with an astonishing reality. And it's true for you as well. Whether we choose to believe it or not, you and I are making disciples, the question becomes, what are you and I making disciples of? And when I say disciple, I want you to think of the word follower. We are making followers. We are making little clones of ourselves as people that are following us. And you've, you've kind of heard the old adage that, you know, that there's always someone looking up to you and you're always kind of looking up to someone else. We are making disciples whether we want to acknowledge it or not. The other side of this is this. We are also being discipled whether we want to acknowledge it or not, something or someone is influencing your life, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So the question then becomes for us, what are we making disciples of? What are we making disciples of, and who is, ma- who is making disciples out of us? Now, what I want us to look at today is how Jesus made disciples. We're going to be jumping out of Ephesians 5 here and talking about this, this phrase where, where uh, Paul says, therefore be imitators of God. I think that Jesus had a very specific way that he, uh, wants, that he wants to mature us spiritually. And that's to, for us to be discipled and to be disciple makers. And many of us, if we're honest, are lackadaisical disciples and lackadaisical disciple makers. Today we want to get a little more intentional, a little more specific about how we're being discipled, the things that are pouring into our lives, and then what we're making followers of. So the big idea of today's sermon is this. As disciples, we help each other follow Jesus together. As disciples, we help each other follow Jesus together. If you have a Bible, let's open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to be looking at two verses today, Ephesians 5, 1, and 2. Paul says this to the Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, what's the therefore? Therefore? Well, he's talked about all of this poor behavior 
that could come up in the body of Christ. And he's saying there's an alternative to this. Be imitators of God. Continuing with verse 1 here, as beloved children. So therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This imitation of God is what we're going to call discipleship. So discipleship means that we help each other follow Jesus together. So how do we imitate God? This is one of the only times this phrase is used in the Bible. Because a lot of times the scriptures will talk about imitating Christ or imitating Paul as Paul is imitating Christ. But this is the, I think this is the only phrase in the Bible where it says imitate God. So how do we imitate God? Put simply, it's this. We imitate Christ. And you and I cannot imitate Christ alone. What comes to mind when I think about this idea of Jesus being God is this conversation that's happened in John chapter 14. And it's actually in the upper room discourse where Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. And Jesus says something along these lines. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So he's telling the disciples, hey, you have seen the Father, because you've seen me. We are one. And then Philip is like, things aren't clicking in Philip's mind. So Philip says this, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. <laughs> it was like one of those moments where Philip is like, well, what you just said, Jesus, kind of went in one ear and out the other. Either that or he's refusing to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is actually God. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We imitate God by imitating Jesus. Jesus is God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. If you want to be godly, be like Jesus. If you want to hear from God, read the Bible, which is the word about Jesus. I mentioned this earlier, but 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul tells these Corinthians how to be like Jesus. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. For some reason, in the grand scheme of God's redemptive narrative, he has chosen to make us like himself through following other people. This is a crazy thing. What God has done in his grand scheme of setting up the church is he has forced us to share life together as the family of God. To share life together as the body of Christ. All of these things that I'm mentioning that describe the church are interconnected things. There's no such thing as a disciple that's not part of the family of God or a disciple that's not part of the body of Christ. We are together. And imitation is a piece of what discipleship is. This is where we get the English word mimic from. It's the same kind of root word there. And the scriptures tell us time and time again that we are to imitate God, imitate Christ, imitate Paul who's following Christ. And as I said earlier, we, we all are imitating or have imitated someone in our life. Just like my daughter Tatum imitated the very thing that I did not want her to imitate in my kitchen three years ago. Whether it's the person that you trained that is a coworker of yours, you train them on the job training, you train them how to do the job, they're imitating you, you're showing them how to do the work. 
Have you ever had a moment in your life where you have experienced something, you have said something, you have done something where you thought, you got, you got this little glimpse where you're like, oh, I am acting like my dad. Or I am acting like, I sounded just like my mom when I said that. You're imitating your parents because you've spent a lot of time with them. And what's the common denominator of imitation of discipleship? It's this idea of being with the people, with the person that you're imitating, with the person that you're following. And we're going to talk much more about that here in a few moments. What will keep you from imitating Christ is your pride. God has and will put uh, people into your life that are, that are quite frankly, I mean, in, in the sight of God, worthy to follow. The question is, will you open up your life enough to, to be discipled, to be led, to, be, to, to help be spiritually matured by those people in your life? These people are, are not worthy because of anything in themselves. They're worthy because of what God has done in them. And as we were reading Matthew 28, 16 through 20 together, I was just reminded that this is the mission of God, that we are called to disciple one another into the image of Jesus. And God's Spirit is the one that does it all, but He does it through different people investing into our lives. It, there, there will always be some part of your spiritual maturation that will suffer if you try to go at life alone. You'll never be what you could be if you weren't a part of the body of Christ. This is the way that God has set this thing up. Even if you think about how Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He was, he was discipling the Corinthians through this letter that he wrote even though he wasn't there. He had an investment in them. He wanted to see that investment come to fruition. He wanted to see them mature in Christ. You know, I was thinking about this this week. There, is, there was no need of making disciples or imitators of God before sin entered the world. Now, why was there no need of that? Because man perfectly related to God and imitated God in everything that he did. Man and God were one, just the same way that Jesus and God are one. There was no need for discipleship because the fall had never occurred. And then sin entered into the world, and it's been birthed in each of our hearts. And you know what that sin has caused in us? It's severed our relationship with God. It's cut us off from God. Discipleship, my friends, is this journey back to oneness with God. What happens is we have become orphans and strangers to our Father in heaven. Instead of becoming imitators of God, we become imitators of the world. That's just why Paul writes all of these things in Ephesians 4, all these warnings of things that Christians should no longer be a part of. So first at our conversion, when we, when, we, when we profess faith in Christ, I want to follow you, Jesus, what happens is we are justified and we're made right with God. We are given this right relationship. We're able to rightly relate with God once again. But that's not where God leaves us because we've spent however many years learning how to live like the world. So this process of sanctification quickly follows it up where God makes us more like Jesus because he puts his spirit inside of us and he puts his people around us. And that's how we mature. That's how we grow up into Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. And our call as God's people is to return to the Father as true sons and true daughters. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. That word beloved is a powerful 
word. That word beloved gives us the identity of God finding pleasure in us because of what Jesus has done. God is already pleased with you if you're in Christ. It's not like you're trying to earn your way to a better standing with God. You already have the best. You're seated at the right hand of God with Jesus. That's where you're at. You're with God. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, says something profound about, really, the, I relate it to discipleship. And if you're not familiar with the, the story of the prodigal son, it's very succinctly, it's this, is that there were, there were, there's a father and there's two sons. One of the sons decides that he wants to take his inheritance early. So basically he's saying to his father, you're dead to me. Give me everything that I would get if I would have stayed with you. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to go away to a far away land. Because I don't like this family. You're dead to me. I want to go. And I think I know how to do life on my own. So the younger son leaves. And he takes all of his inheritance with him. Meanwhile, the older son stays with the father the entire time. Now, what happens with the younger son on down the road is he, he has a change of heart. He runs out of resources. He finds himself in a pigsty. And he says, man, I, I just want to go back and work for my dad. It would, be better, it would be a better situation than this. And so he returns to the father, only to find that the father fully reinstates him as a son. He doesn't make him pay his way back into sonship, but he receives him as a son. But the older son is pretty frustrated with this reality. And he tries to justify why, why, why should the father love him the same way that he loves me? I've been here all along. I tell you this because in this book, Henry Nowen says that it's much more difficult for an older brother, so someone who's been around the church, someone that's religious, someone that's always been close to God, it's more difficult for an older brother that hasn't physically run far from God to acknowledge that he needs to be discipled. Now in the church, there are younger brothers and there are older brothers. There are those of us that are new to the faith, our family didn't raise us up in this. There are those of you that have grown up in church your entire life. And your testimony looks kind of like this. I don't really know when I became a Christian, but I'm a Christian. And that's a great testimony. But I think what Henry Nowen is saying is that there, there may be some times in your story where you are tempted to think that you don't need Jesus as much as you do. That's the danger of the older brother. While the younger brother knows that he's completely unworthy. Now both are in need of Jesus. Their stories are just different. Now I share this example with you because in my life and in your life, there are some discipleship stoppers, is what I'm calling them, that will tempt us to not follow God among God's people, to not help each other follow Jesus together. I'm just going to name three of them. There's probably more. Uh, the first one is this, fear of being known. So if we're honest, maybe we don't want to be known by others. And, and why would we not want to be known by other people? Because we don't want to, maybe we don't want to open ourselves up to the potential of being hurt or having pain inflicted upon our lives. So we think as a, as a defense mechanism, if I just remain alone, then it's a safer place. In my life, the things that I've tried to cover up most about myself have been the greatest instruments that God has used to transform my life. And those are only found through discipling life-on-life -life relationships. I came from a broken family. I became a Christian. I was a spiritual orphan. I had no one to lead me. I had a 14-year-old friend that was discipling me. I was 13. 
I mean, there was, Paul and Timothy was pretty close right there. And what happened is these guys' dads started to invest in me. They started to invest in me, you know, teaching me the things about manhood, but they also started teaching me things about the scriptures. Now, if I would have rejected all of the pain and disappointment that I'd found in my own family and kept myself away from other people's family, I would have suffered a tremendous loss from those guys because they have, they have forever put their thumbprint on me, which is the thumbprint of Christ that they've put on me. Think about Jesus. Jesus completely gave his life away to his disciples. Now, why could Jesus do that? You're only able to give your life completely away if you are secure in who you are in Christ. Jesus was fully known by the Father. He had nothing to lose. He was secure. As we said earlier, Jesus is perfectly one with God. And here's, here's, the, here's kind of the aha moment. The heart of God is that you might have the exact same security in Christ, where there's nothing about your life that, that causes you shame and condemnation anymore, that keeps you away from God's people because you are secure in Christ. That's how strong the grace of God is. There's nothing that can separate us from God. The preparation of heaven is discipleship. Your brokenness may very well be the vehicle of your redemption. Second thing is this, lack of priority. Simply put, you're busy. I recently read a book called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. It's a great little book. If, you, if you're someone that always has that phrase in your mind, I'm just too busy, I just can't do that, pick that book up. It's incredibly short because you're a busy person, right? So the lack of priority thing is you're, you're busy, you've got no margin, you don't have time for anything. And I think we have mistakenly believed that we need more time to do all that we need to accomplish while the, while the truth is, we're doing all that we believe to be important. That's the truth. The, the solution to our issue of lack of time isn't more time. But it's a right prioritization of the time that you have. So if disciple making, being a disciple of Jesus, being in community with other believers was important to you, as the other things that you're doing, you would make time for it. We always make time for the things that are important to us. Third thing is this, you have a small vision of what discipleship is. The entire vision that Jesus had for the advancement of the gospel was for disciples of Jesus to make disciples of Jesus. <laughs> you want to talk about trust? You want to talk about faith? Jesus says, okay, the way, here's the way, guys. Everyone in the world is going to hear about me because of you. And these guys are like, there's like crickets chirping in the upper room, right? I mean, it's, they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? So the single most important thing, the advancement of the gospel to a lost world is based on people sharing the gospel and sharing their lives with other people. Jesus could have spent time with a lot of people, but he decided to go really deep with 12 and to, and to help form them in the gospel by sharing his entire life with them. And everything was on the table. It wasn't like, hey, I'm just going to give you guys Wednesday morning from 545 to 745 and I, you know, I've got some other things going on. Discipleship is all of your life. It's when you give people full access to who you are, and they give you the same access. That's, that's, you really want to see change? You really want to see transformation? When you have the gospel of Jesus in an open heart. God can do incredible things through that, through his spirit in that. So how do we imitate Christ? Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, how do, how, do, how, how do we walk this out as disciples? He says, walk in love as Christ loved us, 
and gave himself up for us. So number two, how do we follow Jesus? We walk in love. This week I was, some, I was spending some time reading uh, one of the greatest Christian allegories in the world written by a guy named John Bunyan called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's this allegorical story about a man named Christian and his pursuit of salvation. Throughout this whole allegory, there are many encounters and temptations that he meets, that he faces. And one that strikes me as interesting is one of the first people that he meets on his journey. It's this guy named Pliant. Pliant is this well-intentioned man who says that he wants to follow. He, he, wants, to, he wants to go on this journey, this trek, this pilgrimage towards salvation. He says he has this excitement, this initial kind of a hype that, yeah, I want to follow you, Christian. I want, I, want to, I want to find out what salvation is and what it means. But what happens quickly on that journey is that he's realized to have little courage and resolution once he meets the first obstacle in this pilgrimage towards salvation. And so what happens is he throws, he throws away this pursuit because things get a little tough in the muck in the mire of life. And he says, this can't be true. This can't actually be what it means to follow Christ because it's way too hard. You see, what was Pliant's problem? Didn't he want to walk in love? Of course he wanted to walk in love. He wanted to find salvation. He wanted to follow Christ. Wasn't he well-intentioned? He seemed to be. Pliant wanted to walk in eros love, not agape love. So what's eros love mean? Well, there's there's different types of love that are mentioned in the Bible. And eros love is this felt love. It's this infatuation that you have whenever you uh, maybe go on your first date in middle school or high school. And there's just this excitement. But it's not this deeper level of this agape love, this self-sacrificing love. And so what happens with eros love is it pops up and then it goes away overnight. As soon as things aren't going to plan, eros love disappears. But this isn't the love that Jesus models for us. Now, why do I bring up this word agape? Well, it's because it's mentioned three times in this verse. This agape love, this self-sacrificing love. What, what three places is it mentioned? Well, it's when, when he calls us beloved children in, in Ephesians 5.1. So God, he talks about God setting his love on us. We are already the beloved. And then he says, Christ loved us. So he's referring to the cross, that the agape love of Christ was most fully known on the cross. It was most fully shown on the cross. And then he gives us a charge, the the charge of the disciple of Jesus. And it's to walk in love, the self-sacrificing love. See, discipleship is not just about bending our will to what is Christ-like, but it's about the gospel melting our hearts into a whole new shape. That's what it means to walk in love. That's what the love of Jesus does to the heart. The enemy wants you to hide. He wants you to never be known. He wants you to be alone. He wants you to think that you're too busy. And he wants you to think that God's people won't fully accept you and love you the way that you are. That's exactly what his plan is. And it's a subtle plan. It's so subtle that he'll make you think it's your own idea. But the plan of God is for us to be fully known as we are fully known by Jesus. And this is the walk in discipleship. We are to move from orphans to sons. And here's the truth. There are things about me, there are things about you that are absolutely unlovable by the world. 
There are things about our past that if people knew, man, they would, they would rail us. We'd never hear, hear the end of it. And the temptation is to think that God is the same way. These are the things that we hide from others and we cover up. We don't want the rejection, the lack of love, uh, that those traits would solicit uh, in our lives. But these are the things that God wants to bring to surface in our lives. These are the, the instruments of transformation in my heart and in your heart. So how does grace, how does Jesus respond to those things? Well, Jesus saw all of you, you're fully exposed your entire life. There's nothing that you can hide from him. He saw all of you, and he still bore the cross. There was, there was not one thing that he saw about you and said, oh, I think he's probably going to keep sinning. I'm going to get off the cross. He didn't stop there. He fully embraced the, the past, the present, and the future sin that you're going to commit this afternoon when he got on the cross. It's an agape love. It's a merciful love toward you. See, this love of God has more time and more grace than you'd ever dare to imagine. And this love of God that we find in Jesus is the basis, is the foundation for us to be disciples of Jesus. You see, what it does is it reestablishes our priorities and repurposes our affections in life. All of a sudden, we realize that we can't do life alone. That we can't be apart from God's people because it's a, it's, a, it's a part of the equation for us to mature in Christ. And so what we do is we realize that we can't live without this, so we begin to reorder our lives so that, we, so that it's a, very much a part of our lives. And we also realize that we can be intentional with every part of our lives, whether it's going to check the mail. Right, Brent? I met Brent by checking my mail. <laughs> you know, whether it's your employer at work, you know, or your employees that you work the, your coworkers that you work with, everything can be a, a, a vehicle for you to begin a discipling relationship that's centered around the gospel. So the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is this, what did Jesus come to do? What was his purpose? Luke 19.10 says this. This is how he models this disciple making for us. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So the purpose in the heart of Jesus is those that know that they are lost. Jesus sought to disciple men who knew that they needed him. He came for the lost, not for the proud who thought they could do it their own way. Think about the people that Jesus encounters with his disciples. All these people want to encounter Jesus. They want, they want, they want Jesus to heal them. Think, think about the, the manifest of people that Jesus meets. The blind man... The lame man, the man with leprosy, the woman at the well, the woman who had been bleeding, the tax collector, on and on and on and on. It's these people that are needy of grace. But the enemy wants you to think that you don't need God's grace, especially those of you that have, been, have had the privilege, quite frankly, to be around the church your entire life. The enemy wants you to think that you don't need God's grace, that you can do it alone. It's a lie. Most times that I think about imitating God or following God, I'm thinking about all the righteous things that God did. But I think God wants to follow him into the merciful relationships that he has with the outcasts of society. Like that's part of what it means to be a disciple, is that you see people from a whole different worldview than you ever have in your life. It's not this idea of, hey, what can this person give me to make me a better person, to help me climb the ladder? But it's, we begin to see people made in the image of God, of having innate value because God has made them. That's a whole different way to see people. 
So who is a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus and a Christian are synonymous terms. I think a lot of times people think, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a disciple. Well, those things equate. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, you're called to be a follower of Jesus, and you're called to go make disciples of Jesus. And for some of us, this spiritual growth as disciples of Jesus, those that have professed faith in Christ and are trusting in him to make them more like Jesus every day, for some of you, your spiritual growth has less to do with you reading more of the scriptures and more, of, more to do with you being with God's people. Because it's, like it's like this perfect recipe. We've got God's spirit, we've got God's word, we've got God's people, and we've got God's mission. Like those things, those things come together. It's a beautiful kind of recipe for transformation. So how did Jesus choose to make disciples? If you know me, you know that I'm passionate about discipleship. That I would rather have a room full of 30 people that want to follow Jesus and make disciples than a, than a room of thousands of people that just want to hear a good sermon. One of the things I've realized is this, is that people will acknowledge the message of Jesus. I mean, Christians will acknowledge the message of Jesus all the time, but they will deny the method of Jesus. The method of Jesus was to make disciples. And this is one of the reasons why I think Jesus messed it up. My, my friend Monty talks about this. I mean, seriously, you think about Jesus. If the mission is to make disciples of the entire world, like, do you realize how big Matthew 28 is? When you read what Jesus told his disciples when he came back right before he ascended to heaven, he said, hey, you guys are going to change the world. You 12 guys, you was a couple fishermen, you know, a tax collector. I mean, you guys you got some real skill sets for making disciples. Could you imagine what would have been going through their mind? I think Jesus messed it up. Jesus should have preached more sermons to the masses. Jesus should have gathered more people at Gwinnett Arena, at Phillips Arena. He should have brought them all in. He should have preached the gospel so that they could hear. But instead, all the time we see Jesus kind of slipping off to the side to go and pray to his father. Going up into a borrowed, rented room at the Passover meal with his 12 guys eating, eating a meal and having the most important conversation in the history of the world. The upper room discourse. Telling them about what it means to follow him. I think Jesus messed it up. Because instead of preaching to the masses, what did he do? He chose 12 men to follow him. Only 11 were really believers. I mean, that, that was the method of Jesus. Yet you and I focus so much, or tempted to focus so much on the masses. Like, that's the answer. Jesus taught us a different way. So you know how many sermons Jesus preached like we think about sermons and preaching today? He preached one sermon like that, the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the other teachings that Jesus has, the, the preaching that he did, was more in these smaller groups. It was, it was I, I envisioned Jesus in John 15, maybe they had walked by a, a vineyard that day, and he says, hey, it's kind of like this. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, he used everything in life to teach. That's what discipleship is. Nothing is wasted. With your kids, because we're called to be the primary disciples of our kids' life, nothing is wasted. Every single thing is an opportunity for us to shape them into the image of God. I've just recently realized this with my daughter Tatum. I've realized that I have been, I have in some ways exasperated her, as the scriptures would say, because I've been trying to make her into someone that she is not. I've been trying to make her into a more social person, and she's quite frankly just not. I've been trying to make her behave a certain way, and she's, her heart's not there yet. And so God is teaching me to rest in the fact that he loves her more than I do, and to trust his grace and to be obedient in how I disciple her. Everything is on the table when we make disciples. 
So he called 12 to follow him. Mark 1.17, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They were fishermen out on the boat, so Jesus kind of did a little play on words there. So Jesus calls us to follow him in the same way that these 12 followed him. I think a lot of times we think about Jesus selecting these 12 disciples, and it was like this. He was just walking down the beach one day, and he's like, yeah, I'll take one of you, maybe one of you, and these guys didn't know Jesus. Did you know that the entire first year of Jesus' ministry was dedicated to spending time with these men that he would disciple? He was really only with these men for two years. You see, from the time that the, the, the gospel writers begin writing about Jesus' public ministry, he doesn't really do anything the first year. You know what I think he was doing? He's probably spending a lot of time praying. He was spending a lot of time getting ready for the mission that was at hand. He was spending a lot of time getting to know these men that he would call to follow him. It wasn't like Jesus was some stranger and they just dropped their nets in their boat and swam into the... He knew these men. He knew these men deeply. I'm going to read Matthew 28, 18 through 20 one more time. And I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it with fresh ears. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Think about that phrase. He said, I'm God. Everything has been given to me. Everything you see is mine. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of age. Jesus says, okay, here's an impossible task for you to do, but I want you to remember I'm with you, that this is my plan, that I'm going to use you. I think we like to emphasize the go in this passage, but the scriptures, when you look at the Greek language, the the go is not emphasized nearly at all. Do you know what's emphasized? The word make. Make disciples is the imperative of this passage. And, And it kind of reads like this, if you were to look at it in the Greek. As you are going, make disciples. We tend to think that you know, Matthew 28 is about the, the world, about this global vision. And the global vision is very important. I'm passionate about the world, about global mission. And you're going to be hearing more about that here at New City. But discipleship starts right where you're at. That's what the Great Commission is about. It's about in your living room. It's about in this church. Everything is on the table. So lastly, as we land this plane here, how do we follow Jesus? We lead others to walk in love. The true test of a disciple is whether they are able to make disciple makers or not. As I begin to meet with men, as we're casting the vision of the church here over the last three years, I would say that I'd say I've probably met with a couple hundred people, just individual men over lunch, over, over breakfast, whatever. And as I would ask them the question, has anyone ever showed you how to follow Jesus before? Have you, have you been discipled before? About 50% of the people would probably say, yeah, I'd say I've been discipled. There's this guy that invested in me. We read the Bible together. It was awesome. He's a good friend of mine. I talk to him all the time. I would say, uh, then I would ask a follow-up question. And it was this. Has anyone ever showed you how to make disciples? And it was like silence fell across the land. Are you speaking English? Like, I can't understand you. See, we've been, we've been discipled, but we've not been shown how to go and make disciples. Well, the scriptures would say that we probably really haven't been discipled yet if we don't know how to go make disciples. And I think we've made disciple making kind of a a heroic kind of a thing when it's really just an everyday ordinary kind of a thing. At New City Church, 
where I'm getting with all this is we want to make disciple makers, people that know, that have, that have been taught the ways of Jesus, but then go and give away the ways of Jesus to teach others how to love. So how do we go and make disciples? 2 Timothy 2.2 says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We think that discipleship is really about us gaining all of the knowledge that we can, kind of sitting on the Bible, sitting in, in kind of a holy huddle for a season, and we think that it's just about just staying there as long as we can, and then maybe one day we'll kind of branch out. Well, the way of Jesus is that we're always on God's mission. It doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are. That means if you became a believer two weeks ago, you're on God's mission. You're about the work of making disciples. Now, it looks a little different from day one, but we're always on God's mission of making disciples. What else did Jesus do? How else did he show us how to make disciples? Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. Couple that with Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And why were they astonished? Because they recognized they had been with Jesus. There's this withness principle that discipleship carries with it. That you can't be a disciple of Jesus unless you're with the people that God has called you to disciple. And those that are being discipled by other people, you have to spend time together. And this is why in the home, it's the greatest battlefield of discipleship, right? Because we're always with one another. I love Perimeter Church's definition of discipleship. Just listen to this. It's laboring in the lives of a few with the intention of imparting one's life, God's word, and the gospel work in such a way as to see them become mature and equipped followers of Christ. And here's the last thing. Committed to doing the same in others' lives. It's the mission part there. Randy Pope says this, discipleship is doing the old thing with new people. You see, we never stop the work of making disciples. I want you to remember that something or someone is discipling you, and, and our call is to be intentional with what discipleship is in our lives. So, Practically speaking, Ryan, what does this mean? What are you getting at with all this? If there's one thing I've learned, it's this. Disciples of Jesus aren't made by accident. You don't just accidentally make a disciple of Jesus. So what we're asking you to do as a church is to start somewhere. To take a baby step in the direction of being committed to God's people the same way that you are maybe a worship gathering or a, a Bible study or something like that. To be among God's people. We're asking you to start somewhere. So let me talk about talk briefly about the three environments we have at New City Church. We have a worship gathering, which is what you're at right now. In a worship gathering, you can receive the word, you can worship with the saints, you can get together with God's people. But the problem is you can remain anonymous in here. Some of you come to church and you remain anonymous. And that's fine. I mean, that's cool for a season, but if you're going to want to be a part of this church long term, you're not going to last because we're not going to let you remain anonymous because that's not what God's people do. We're called to be together. And so if you're, if you're one of those people that just kind of comes to worship, we are so glad that you're here, but we want to see you embraced by the family of God and to grow with the family of God. And that's one of the benefits to our size right now. I, I tell people that our greatest, one of our greatest strengths as a church right now is our size. People think it's like a, like a weakness. I'm like, oh, it's great. 
We actually can know one another. We can live. We can share life with one another. It may not always be this way, but that's the size that we're at right now. Disciples of Jesus are not spectators. They are participants in the game. So maybe you need to take a step and join a missional community. If you're unfamiliar with what a missional community is, it is simply a a group of people, you know, 10 to 20 people that say we want to share life together. We want to live as the family of God together. We want to know each other and be known by other people. It's mixed gender. There are men and women. There are children in these communities. And we are trying to live out the identities as a church together uh, in those missional communities. Those missional communities multiply. We've had three for this semester. We are going to five in the fall. It's a beautiful thing that God is doing. He's raising up leaders. He's bringing new people in. A missional community is a great first step to get connected into community. But underneath that, our heart and our desire is to really see those missional community relationships flow down into something that's a little more distilled that we call discipleship groups. Now, those discipleship groups are men with men and women with women. When we look at how Jesus made disciples... Here's kind of how he did it. There was a time where Jesus was about the selection of his disciples. And so he selected 12 men. He spent a season doing that. And then after that season, he kind of of closed his group off. And he said, now I'm going to invest deeply into these 12 men. We're going to be about God's mission, but I'm going to give all my life away to these men. And I realized that I can't give all of my life away to everyone the same way that I could to these 12 men. And so we want to model Jesus in that same way. So here in the fall, we've got... We've got six discipleship groups that are starting. We're going from two to six. We've got three men's groups, three women's groups. We can have probably up to six or seven people in each of those groups. And so this week, you're going to have an opportunity to be able to respond to your desire to be in one of those those deeper kind of distilled discipleship groups. And it's going to come via email, and you'll have an opportunity to put in a little information and, and maybe some scheduling conflicts or whatever, and we'll try our best to accommodate but then what would happen is, is, is a, a discipleship group leader would meet with you, and we'd kind of cast their vision for what that group is. You guys would pray together and see if God's calling you to, to share life together. And there's a higher expectation there. I mean, I think in my discipleship group this past year, there were probably, the most that anyone missed in our group was probably me, and I probably missed three times because I was out of town. There's a high commitment to to going deep in the Word, we memorize Scripture together. We talk about what it looks to, to be evangelists together, to share the gospel with other people. We pray together. Our relationships run real deep, and we're eternally thankful for this uh, last year that we've had together. But now the time has come for us to multiply, and so there's a little loss that happens because you have these great relationships, and you're like, it's not going to be the same next year. But that's what the mission of God is. He's called us. So a little death must happen in our relationships so that more life can be Produce. So if you're interested in those, we want you to let us know. We want to try to get you plugged into community, whether that be a missional community or a discipleship group. Let us as God's beloved be conscious disciples and conscious disciple makers because the, the risk is too high. We cannot imitate God alone. We cannot imitate Christ alone. God has called us to be together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful that you've called us to be together. This is just a really important thing, God, that we would be a church that makes disciples. Father, we think that, that your son Jesus has shown us the way. He's shown us what to do. So would you help us walk out that journey? Would you give us courage and boldness to take a step toward living in deeper fellowship and community with your people? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.